Well, we all got our money's worth from that, and thank you so much, and it's good morning, and it's great to see all of you. I'm glad that you're here and uh, here to worship with us or joining us by television or on the internet. We're so thrilled that you would gather for worship. I hope that you had a wonderful week, hopefully less grumbling this past week. We had an assignment this past Monday. I did have somebody who asked me, if I know of somebody who grumbled, who do, where do I turn them in? And so... Uh, There'll be ushers in the back just receiving those reports. Now, I did get a report over here that it, uh, until Thursday, did fine up until Thursday. And so, uh, but listen, hopefully the Lord just made us more aware um, of what it is in our life that we have to be grateful for. But I'm glad to see you here this morning. For the last few weeks, we've been going through the book of Philippians, which is a letter written from Paul to the church at Philippi. And he wrote this letter most likely while he was in prison in Rome. This is not a prison like we would be used to if we were to visit today, if you had a reason to visit. But uh, the circumstances of Paul's life would not produce joy for him. Uh, But it's clear through the letter to the Philippians that there is a theme there of just overwhelming joy, even in the midst of what would be just unsettling circumstances for him. You know, it's very easy for us to be fooled into thinking that happiness will come to us if we have the right circumstances. We think, well, if I only had the right job, then I'd be happy. You know, if I had the right amount of income, then I could be happier. If I was in the right relationship, then I could be happy. But we all know that those things never really make you happy. Paul, who in many ways had the worst of circumstances, he had the wrong job, the wrong income, the wrong relationships, but he was trapped by what we've decided has, uh, should be called an inescapable joy. He found a deeper well to drink from that supplies this inescapable joy for life. And the good news is that same well is available to you and me, and it's simply found in a life lived in relationship with Jesus. So today we're going to pick up in Philippians 3, and I'm going to read to you this morning verses 7 through 14. So if you have your Bibles, you might pull them out. I'm sure it'll be on the screen as well, but Philippians 3, verses 7 through 14. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him, And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind And reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul is clearly declaring in this passage that his past gave him reason to have confidence in a righteousness that comes by way of the law. 
He had done the right things, yet he states his only hope is in knowing Jesus and the righteousness that's received through faith. So he was committed to enduring and to straining ahead in the Christian life to receive the prize of the upward call of Christ that was in front of him. So the goal for Paul and for us is to reach what lies ahead. So how do we do that? What I want to propose to you today is to reach what lies ahead for us in Christ Jesus, we must move beyond our past. Too often we let our past define us, it traps us, it paralyzes us. So to reach what lies ahead for us in Christ Jesus, the upward call of Christ, we move beyond our past. So we're going to reach what lies ahead by properly, number one, assessing gains and losses. Number two, um, uh, recognizing the goal. And finally, number three, forgetting and reaching. So we're going to focus on that first part of the sermon, assessing gains and losses. In chapter three, uh, Paul turns to an issue that the Philippian church is facing. And it wasn't just them. It were many churches in the region in this time period. Um, They were... um, Christianity came uh, about as a sect of Judaism. So there was some who insisted that Christians maintain Judaism within the, with maybe a side of Jesus. So we're Jews, but we have this side of Jesus as the Messiah. And these people were called Judaizers. Well, evidently this was happening in Philippi. And so Paul addresses it. But he doesn't address it as an outsider saying, I can't believe that. He speaks to it as an insider. He says... I have all the credentials when it comes to Judaism. And he explains it. He lays it out if you look at the first part of the chapter. A Jew among Jews. He says it's enough to lead him to have pride over his Jewish credentials. To put faith in his Judaism. Faith in his uh, understanding of what he had by birth. His birthright as, a, as a, uh, one of God's chosen people. Because that's what the Judaizers were apt to do. Then he shatters that way of thinking with verse 7. That's what he's responding to. He says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. He uses the language of commerce, gain and loss, profit and loss here. He already did that actually in the letter. In Philippians 2, verse 1, verse 21, he says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He speaks in the language of commerce. There's something better than just living. He says there's gain in death for him. And so Paul is making an argument in this passage for what is better or for what is the profitable pursuit for you and me. And then, uh, and the perspective, excuse me, the perspective for this assessment of life is coming from Christ. Paul properly identifies what's in the past. He says, uh, those things that were gained to me, he refers to them as if they're back here. You know, whatever his credentials he had as a a, judge, you know, Jewish achievements or birthright or those things. And then he comes to the verb, have counted, which is a kind of a present assessment. I've looked at all of those things. I've kind of gone through them and I count them, he says, as loss. Now, he's not renouncing his heritage. He's not renouncing the circumcision or his righteous living. But he is renouncing them as a grounds for boasting. He says, I'm no longer going to boast about those things because my eyes are in front of me. He's saying that Jesus came into his life and laid down a dividing line. That's what happened. And now there is a past, there's a present, and there's what he's looking to in the future. And in light of what Jesus has done, 
His past that he was banking on is out the window. And he's lost all of that and he's gained something so much better, which is Christ. So verse 7 is a great statement. But I would say it's a journalist statement. It's just one single sentence. Every word counts. But Paul's a preacher as well. So he takes and turns a sentence into paragraph. I know you think I do the same thing. But Paul does it. I'm just following his example. He takes a single sentence, verse 7, and turns it into four verses, uh, 8 through 11. We'll look at the first couple verses of that. He says, more than that. In other words, let me keep going. Somebody must have shouted amen, and he said, I'll keep going. And he, and he says he puts all things in the category of a loss with compare, when compared to knowing Jesus. And then Paul gets a little crude here. He says in verse 8, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish. The word rubbish is translated from a Greek word, skubalon, which can be a vulgar word referring to dung. So you kind of get the idea of what he's saying here. He says, all of those things that were gained to me, that I've lost in my pursuit of following Jesus, I count those things as trash. That's filth. That's scraps for dogs. I know some people uh, brag about it, but I realize it's crumbs on the table in comparison to what I've gained. And I think Paul is implying that we have to count the things from our past the same way if our goal is Jesus. I know we all walk in here and some of us have certain reasons to place pride in life. And Paul says, but in comparison to Jesus, those things are a loss. They're rubbish. They're filth. Because nothing finishes in a close second to Jesus. You ever thought about that? Nothing comes close to Jesus. So he far exceeds, Jesus far exceeds every other cause. It doesn't matter whether it's a noble cause or otherwise. It's all rubbish next to him. So then there's this great reversal in the Christian life. What was lost, he now gains. He gains in his loss, which is Jesus. Jesus is the gain for Paul. There's also a, theo a theological implication in this idea. What was in Paul's past was this pursuit of righteousness by way of the law. He was trying to be right by doing right things. What that means is that Paul counted on being credited as righteous or good enough because he had done good things. That's what he was wrestling with here. In fact, he says if at the end of life God measures our life by, you know, our good things versus our wicked deeds, he says, I am faultless. That's what verse 6 says. I am blameless when it comes to that. When it comes to behavioral righteousness, Paul says, I'm a good guy. I am among the best, is what he says. But now he says, all of that is out the window. Because he has been now found in Christ. And that's the gain that he has. And so now it's the difference. And I know I've kind of rushed through this, but hopefully you'll get it. The difference between behavioral righteousness and positional righteousness. So rather than behaving so good that I can be declared righteous, I now have a position where I'm declared as righteous because I'm found in Jesus. That means by being in Christ, the Christian is covered by Jesus' righteousness. See, Romans is clear. Nobody is going to be declared righteous by way of the law. You can do all the good that you want to. You can try your best. But the scripture says no one will be declared righteous by way of the law. He says there is none righteous, no, not one. So we all have this innate thing in our mind that maybe we're good enough. But the scripture's clear. If anybody's going to behave well enough, they're not going to be declared righteous. 
We need something different. We're desperate for a Savior. And guess what? God responds to our need, and he gives us Jesus. What we could not do, Jesus does. And on the cross, all of a sudden, he takes away all of our sin and all of our wickedness. But he doesn't stop there. Now he gives us all of his righteousness. So by being found in him, now Jesus sees us, I mean, God sees us wrapped in Jesus' righteous robes. And he clarifies this in verse 9 by explaining justification. He says, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So righteousness before God is not found in right living. You are not going to, God's not going to look at you and say, well, you've been great. Righteousness before God is going to be received by faith in Jesus. Okay, so we said this letter is about joy. Now, we know joy is not found in circumstances, okay? Uh, uh, Happiness may be found in temporary pleasure, but it's only temporary. But inescapable joy comes in viewing Jesus as true gain in our life. Many of you are in uh, businesses where you look at quarterly profit and loss reports. Maybe you're in a position where you look at monthly ones. And what you're doing, the report shows you where have we gained and where have we lost and how did we pan out in the end. You know, are we heading in the right direction? Are the fish still biting is kind of the idea. So Paul gives us an assessment of his life. And I think we should do the same thing. What would a profit and loss report look like for your life? Now, these reports look differently depending on how you measure them, right? So let me just say to you, by way of the world, profit looks like Power, success, money, um, all those things are considered gain. But Paul drives us to God's perspective. Remember, Jesus is the one who said to us in Mark eight thirty six, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? So if your profit and loss report is based on how the world looks at it, you may think we're doing great. But by God's perspective, we might have just lost our soul in the process. So today, I would exhort you to apply this passage by really taking an assessment of your life. Do you live your life as if Jesus is your greatest achievement? Do you live your life as if Jesus is the highest good in your life? Paul says in comparison to Christ, everything else is rubbish. It's dung. It's trash. Do you allow the values of this world to outweigh the things of God? Well, we will reach what lies ahead by properly assessing gains and losses. And then secondly, we see in the last part of Paul's sentence, turned paragraph, that we will reach what lies ahead by properly identifying the goal. Paul's an interesting character study because he is one of the original religious terrorists. That's what he was. He describes that in verse 6, in fact. He measured his life by the degree to which he persecuted Christians. That's what he says in verse 6. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He believed God measured how good he was by how much he hammered down on Christians. As how much he tried to stamp out the gospel. But in verse 10, he, he shares he has a new goal. Verse 10, he says that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Your version may actually even declare this is his goal. My goal is to know him. When Paul speaks of knowing Christ Jesus, 
either here or in verse 8, he's not talking about just knowing facts about Jesus. See, plenty of times we just think that it's about how much do you know about Jesus? How much can you tell about his life, about his past, about his experiences? But that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about a relationship. I know him because I'm in relationship with him. I don't just know facts about him, but I know the power of his resurrection because I've experienced it. I know the fellowship of his sufferings because I'm enduring it. Verse 10 is Paul's statement of sanctification. The process of being made to be like Jesus. The upward call. I know Jesus by experiencing his resurrection. I die to sin and then he brings me back and gives me new life. And then he says, I, uh, Paul says, I share in Jesus' sufferings. Now, I don't know about you, but I kind of kick against that because I want to be happy. And I don't think that happiness comes through suffering, right? But Paul says that there is joy in suffering because in suffering, he identifies he's with Jesus. It's evidence of his salvation. Suffering in this life is the normal lot for believers. Now, I'll just make a comment on that because I believe sometimes that's hard for us in America because in America, mostly we experience discrimination for our faith, not necessarily persecution. But we recognize today as we worship together, there are places in the world where they live under, undercover. They live in hidden places. They worship together in secret places so they can't be found out because they, are, they face persecution. That's what they do. I, got, I know I've mentioned before a um, missionary in our church. We refer to this person as A to provide them security and sent a message yesterday trying to get from one country to the next. And so every time they go through border control, it's kind of a scary thing. And so uh, the whole team presents their passports. Everybody gets through but A. A doesn't get through. The border agent says, your passport's been flagged. And A thinks, well, that's it. Because once it's flagged, you don't make it back in. And so uh, A said that they were praying about it, texted the team, pray about this, texted other people uh, that A's in relationship with, said be praying about this. But A said that they realized they were um, serving in this country at the pleasure of God. So if God was bringing that to a close, it would be very difficult, but understood. And A remembered that there was a moment with some security that might have been enough to flag the passport but prayed that God might make a way. The border agent came back after a while, countenance changed, and said there was something wrong. It flagged it, but now we can't find the flag anymore. Don't know what happened. And as A walked away, overheard other agents there saying, well, that's never happened before. You know, God made a way through the Red Sea. God still makes a way for people. Then he gives the ultimate in sanctification here. Paul says he's being conformed to Jesus through his death. You know, everybody wants a resurrection, but nobody wants a death. I think there's a song about that. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die, right? Suffering is bad enough, but death? What's Paul saying here? Paul is saying, I have the cross stamped on my life. That's the way I see my life. It's because of the cross. It's the way that I see the world. It's the way that I see my circumstances. It's the way that I see my future, my hopes, my dreams. Paul's goal was the the cruciform life, one defined by the cross. And then in verse 11, he gives a statement about glorification. 
the future reality of resurrection from the dead into eternal life. See, true joy is not found in avoiding pain or suffering or inconvenience or death. True joy is ours when we make knowing Jesus our goal. My boys are playing uh, basketball this year, and it's always fun for parents as spectators those first few games when kids are out there on the basketball court, and the ball gets to them, and they're thinking, oh, I've got a ball, what do I do, right? And those first few games, they just shoot, you know? And so inevitably, I've already seen a couple people score on the wrong goal, right? Because they get the ball, there's the goal, they hear people shouting, shoot! And so they shoot and make it. Now, they could shoot at their own goal all day, and they'll miss it. But the wrong goal, for some reason, it always goes in. But do you ever wonder if you are shooting at the wrong goal? One of the most important things you can do in life, this is a great principle for life, is to make sure you're aiming for the right goal. The Old Testament tells this interesting story about a beauty queen named Esther. You're probably familiar with Esther. Esther won a beauty pageant, but she didn't get a crown, she didn't get a sash or a scholarship. She became queen. Well, it turns out that in her kingdom, God's people were being persecuted. And she was one of God's people. She was a Jew. And the king's right-hand man had it in for the Jews. So Esther could have thought that the goal to shoot for was beauty or pleasure, you know, or fashion or power. But her cousin Mordecai turns her towards the right goal and says, no, 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 no. And in Esther 4.14, at the end of the verse, it says, who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Listen to me. God has placed you here for more than temporary pleasure. He has placed you here for more than just temporary success and power. I get it. You might be shooting and the ball might be going in. But you're not racking up points for eternity doing that. Paul's goal was knowing him and making him known. What's your goal? So to reach what lies ahead, we need to properly identify the goal. And finally, we reach what lies ahead by properly forgetting and reaching. Verse 12, verse I think you ought to return to very often, says, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Paul wants to make sure nobody misunderstands. Now, people do. People say Paul's so full of himself, he thinks he's got it all put together. But Paul is clearly saying here, It's not that I'm perfect. It's not that I've taken hold of it or that I've reached maturity. He says, I'm still a work in progress, and I am too. Just when I think I get it together, the most terrible things come out of my mouth or the most awful things run through my mind. I lose my patience with my children, with my wife, with people I'm interacting with. All of a sudden, I'm trying to angle to achieve kind of a success in the world's eyes. A need comes towards me, and I turn the other direction. I'm a work in progress, just like Paul. So what do I do? Well, Paul says, I press on. I make every effort to move the ball down the court. There's no room for laziness in the Christian life. I don't stop to rest on past successes that we scored last time. No, I just keep pressing on. And Paul says he presses on to lay hold of that for which Christ has laid hold of him. You know what he's remembering there? The Damascus Road. He's remembering, I was dribbling for the wrong goal, and I was shooting, and I was making it, and Jesus right there interrupted my life. The one I was persecuting took hold of me. He took me out of darkness and placed me in light. When I think about what Jesus has done to me, or done for me, I get overwhelmed. 
I can't believe it. Especially when I compare what I've done for him to what he's done for me. Oh, man, there's no comparison. And when I think about what God has done for me, it gets my adrenaline going. I'm not going to throw the towel in. Paul's not going to throw the towel in either. He realized, I'm not done yet. I have not laid hold of that for which Christ has laid hold of me. The upward calling in Christ Jesus. So he says, one thing I do, one thing, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Paul says he forgets what's behind him. You know, most people can't do that. Most people are plagued by their past. They're trapped by their past. They're paralyzed by it. But Paul says he forgets it. Now, a word of clarity here. John Ortberg offers a word of clarity here. He says, forgetting does not mean I refuse to think about the past because it will make me feel bad. It means I refuse to permit whatever happened to keep me from pursuing spiritual growth today. He allows himself to focus on what's in front of him, not behind him. He reaches forward to what lies ahead. His eyes are in front of him. That's what he does. He's not looking over his shoulder. In 1954, a one-mile race occurred at the Commonwealth Games in Vancouver. It's remembered as the mile of the century. Uh, about this point in history, they believe that humans couldn't run faster, run a mile faster than four minutes. But a couple of men had broken that record. John Landy of Australia and uh, Roger Bannister of England. Uh, they had both broken the four-minute mile. And so now, in 1954, they're going to race against each other for the first time. And uh, the, they're, they're running the race. Landy takes off, and he is running a pace that was going to beat the four-minute mile. Uh, and he leads almost the whole way until I think it's about the last turn. And all of a sudden, he looks over his left shoulder to see where Bannister is. And at that same moment, Roger Bannister bursts past the right side and never relinquishes, and he wins the race. Landy could not forget what was behind him, and Bannister, who was reaching forward, received the prize. Well, let me say this. For Paul, the prize could simply be stated as Jesus. That's what he's straining ahead for, for Jesus. He's not straining for a wreath or a crown or a medal or a ribbon. He wants Jesus. But what we must remember, to reach what lies ahead, for us in Christ, we need to move beyond our past. You know, Paul had to get past his past. If anyone had reason to be trapped by regret, it was Paul. He was a terrorist against Christians. I mean, his goal was to stomp out the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you think he ever crossed his mind? I'm not good enough to do this. Not only that, if anybody had reason to feel trapped by persecution or pain or suffering, it's Paul. He endured all of it over and over and over again. Lesser men would have given up. Paul even mentions it. Put hands to the uh, plow and then look back. But not Paul. Paul also mentioned some sort of, he called it a thorn in the flesh. Most scholars think it was probably a physical ailment. Could have held him back. There's reason enough for many people to throw in a towel, but not Paul. So to reach what lies ahead for us in Christ Jesus, we need to move beyond our past. Every one of you walked in here this morning or sat down in front of the screen today with something in your past that has the potential to hold you back from reaching what God has in front of you. could totally derail your life. We all have bad things in our past. Maybe it's a my bad kind of thing, some kind of regret that you're holding on to, a broken relationship, maybe a broken marriage, something you did, some kind of uh, sin that every time you, it just crawls into your mind, I'll never be good enough. 
Now, I want to be clear here. Grace always comes with truth. And so we do face consequences for the sin in our past. But the sin in your past should never keep you from pursuing spiritual growth today. If you're not careful, you'll keep your eyes on that rather than the prize in front of you. So maybe it's a my bad thing, or maybe it's a your bad. Somebody else has done something to you, walked out on you, hurt you, rejected you, left you alone. Or maybe you were called out or kept out, and you wake up with that every single day. You've got to get your eyes off of that and on to Jesus who's in front of you. Or maybe it's more of an it's bad kind of thing. Just something that happened to you. It's really bogged you down. Maybe a lost job. Maybe a missed opportunity. Or maybe a tragic accident or a bad diagnosis. Or maybe it's some good thing you've done in the past that that's all you dwell on that's in your your past. And those things have defined you. If you want to reach what lies ahead, you need to move beyond your past. So right now, I want to invite you just to do that. We're going to pray. And you, you might just, as a matter of fact, you might use a little body language to communicate this. And I'll just invite you just to take your fist and you just grip it like this. And you think about that thing that's in your past, that thing that's been holding on to you, that you keep your eyes on, that's kept you from reaching your potential. Whether it's shame or whether it's guilt or whether it's hurt or loss, or maybe it's an event or a person. You feel how your hand's getting cramped by you holding that? That'll happen to your soul, too. So you might just pray this. You might just say, God, help me get past my past. And you just open up your hand, palms up to the Lord. You may have to do that every day for the rest of your life. But you do it. You get your eyes off your past and own to what lies ahead of you. Our Father in God, we thank you that you have rescued us from dominion of darkness. You have rescued us from the sin and the guilt of our past, from the shame, from the loss, from the hurt. And God, you give us a glorious future. Father, let it be said of everyone that's here that they ran hard for you. Not giving up, not looking back. God, I pray that you would speak today, even now in our invitation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If God's speaking to your heart, would you respond? Some of you might just need to come and kneel, and you might just need to do that. Whatever it is, and say, God, take it away. You might need to make a decision about joining the church or following believers' baptism. Or maybe it's to follow Jesus. You have head knowledge, but you don't have heart knowledge about the Lord. I'll be down here. If you need to pray or need to talk to somebody, you see me. Or if you want to just pray right here, you come forward. So you stand as our choir sings you respond.